0: If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. We're continuing in this series, September in the Psalms. And as we walk through various Psalms, it's important for us to know that the authors of these, uh, many are David. David authored many of the Psalms that are written in this, along with Solomon wrote a few. The sons of Asaph and Asaph wrote a few. The sons of Korah wrote a few of these, Uh, but as we look at these, one thing we understand, the word psalm means song. It is one that was originally written. A lot of times when you read these, you don't catch the rhythmic flow of the psalms because they've been translated into English. And in the original language, they had flow, they had beauty, they had... A big word that we learned in seminary was chiastic, set up so that they would build out and build back and things of this nature. Uh, It's very important for us to understand that these were written to be sung. And when we think about many of the songs that we sing Uh, You know, there are songs that are written that I love, that I love, that I cherish from my childhood. Many of them we have been singing the last couple of weeks, you know. And they're written from people's personal experiences with God, how God has saved them from things, saved them to things, brought them from one place to another, which is wonderful, and I full-heartedly believe we need to be singing those. And then we have psalms that sometimes... You don't really hear the psalms in many of the hymns that we sing. But as we sing songs, as we listen to these and we look back through, you can catch so much of the beauty of what was sung by the Israelites, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, as they um, walked into the New Testament time. This is what they were singing. Many of these psalms that we look at now is just scripture It's so much more than Scripture. It is Scripture. It is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. But yet it is also beautiful songs that have been sung by those saints that have come long before us. And some are prayers. Most of them are songs to be sung. And then there are also prayers. And even songs can be sung, uh, excuse me, prayers may be sung as well. We're looking today in Psalm 83. And in the verse, the very first verse that we look at today, um, I'm going to kind of use it as the introduction to the whole of the text. In verse 1, it says, Do not keep silent, O God, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. In verse 1, Asaph prays to God that God participate in his problems, in his issues. How many of you have ever prayed a prayer and asked God to help you with issues or problems in your life? Okay, If you're not raising your hand, you need to get a better prayer life. (laughs) Because we all have had problems. We have had difficulties in our lives. Now, he's praying on behalf of the nation, as we'll find out here in a minute, because enemies have come against God. They are making an effort against God in many different ways. And as we start off here in just a moment in verses 2 through 4, we see where there is an effort made against God's people. But Asaph is writing this, calling out to God, do not keep silent. And when he says, oh God, this this word is from the the original Hebrew language, and it's Elohim, do not keep silent, Elohim. And with this theological conviction in mind, he prays that God may act on behalf of his people. God is called on to act. Uh, God is called upon to be active by not keeping silent. You know, we want God to speak. Asaph is saying, God, please speak into this situation. There's many times in our lives we say, God, please speak into this situation. And we want God to speak into it. Asaph says next, do not hold your peace. And so Asaph prays this prayer. Please, God, do not hold your peace. That means defend us. Defend us. Defend your name. Don't hold your peace. There's times in our lives we pray similar prayers. God, please stand on... Stand is my defense. I am too weak to stand against this enemy. Whether it be the works of Satan or Satan working through individuals in our lives, whatever it may be, God, stand in my defense. Please do not hold your peace and please do not be still. And this is a prayer for God to please move or act for us and for His name's sake. We want God to move and act. We want to see God move and act in our individual lives. We want to see God move and act in our families' lives. We want to see God move and act in our church families' lives. We want to see God move and act. Please do not be silent. Please do not hold your peace. Please do not be still. Be, Be present in what we need right now, God. We need you. And many of you have dealt with various situations in life. Obviously, as we get into this text, it's, it's enemies. It's attacks. It's physical, violent attacks on God, His people, His judges. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. I hope you have not. But if you have, I hope you have prayed for God to defend you in those situations. But many times in our lives today, the attacks are the attacks on our minds, the attacks on our hearts, the attacks sometimes even on our families around us. And Satan wants us to question the goodness of God and not even go to Him. It becomes so introspectively looking so much into ourselves that we're not looking outward to God the Father. Now, does the Holy Spirit reside within us? Yes, He does. Does the Holy Spirit seal us? Yes, He does. But when we talk about that, we're looking for God to come in and make His presence known to us in the situation which many a times can be external from us. So we ask him to show himself present. Let's look at verses two through four of uh, Psalm eighty-three. Verses two through four, he, uh, Asaph says, "For behold, so this is I'm bringing attention to you, my prayer, and this is what is 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 causing me to pray. Your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people." And consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, Come, let us cut them off. Talking about the people of Israel, God's people, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. I've entitled this portion of verses two through four, The Effort Against God's People. There is an effort against God's people. I'm going to talk more in detail about present day, about how that's still occurring. But in this passage of Scripture, we see Asaph begins laying out the reasons for his prayer, which are to defend the name of God and also that God destroy his enemies or make an example of them. To destroy them or make an example of them and to defend the name of God. The entire purpose of the enemy's effort are to erase the name of Israel. The name of Israel is first, the people of God, and secondly, it represents any semblance of God, Elohim, from the earth. That's the effort of God's enemies. The devil has been at work since the beginning of time. And since his casting down from heaven, Satan has been working to erase God or his presence from the earth or the people who dwell therein. That's what Satan's been trying to do ever since the beginning. Since Satan couldn't be greater or mightier than God, which is, will never occur, Since he couldn't do it, what's the next thing he could do? Distract us, defeat us, or hinder us from following after the God of creation. And that's what he does. He he is an enemy to us. He is an enemy ultimately to God. But he is in making an effort against God's people. And how does he do that? He does that through the work of people who are pagans and lost without Christ. He does that through them. This did not stop throughout the Old Testament, whether it was during the time of the judges, the kings, or the prophets. The work of Satan was constantly to thwart the work of Christ, the work of God in his people. You see, uh, in verse 2, he says, Your enemies have made a tumult. Those who hate you have lifted up their head. This 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 meaning of lifting up their head this is a statement of arrogance and pride. You know, when we come before God, we come before Him humbly. We are not worthy to look upon God. But these these enemies of God have lifted up their head and said, we're not afraid of you. We don't honor you. We don't respect you. We lift up our head in, in, in defiance to you as the one true God. And we will come against you. And we can see from this text the effort to conspire and coordinate for the purpose of destruction and defamation of the Lord's name. They have taken crafty counsel against your people. The people are still out there working. People today are still working to take an effort away from God, to take every effort of glory away from God. We can see that all across our world. We can see that in Hollywood. It it is so wild in the last two to three years how much satanic, occultic uh, action, activities have been pouring very Very prominently from so many musical artists and everything else. Uh, If I recall, I'm trying to remember who it is. It was a female artist. I don't want to call any one name because there's so many of them, number one, that are, I mean, that are so messed up and and leading uh, students and children away from Christ and away from godly things. Uh, I was listening to um, Jackie Hill Perry. She is a Christian. Bible teacher, female Christian Bible teacher. If you're not listening to her, she's very good lady. She's, she's a very good teacher. And she was talking about that God had asked her to cut some things out of her life that were, that were hindering her from following Christ. She said she thought it would be maybe uh, her diet, maybe her diet, maybe these different things. But she said, the only thing that kept coming to my mind was Beyonce. And some of y'all might not even know who this person is. But anyway, she's a very popular secular artist, who tends to dress in a bathing suit to sing her music on a stage? Just to be honest with you, that's basically how she dresses, or like a stripper. I mean, if I can be honest. Well, anyway, she, Jackie Hill Perry, got to looking into her music, and she got she came to this revelation that she's speaking all kind of satanic, occultic things in her song. So she said, "You know what? I do got to get rid of this stuff." And you need to be mindful, parents, grandparents, what your kids are listening to. You may say, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. The mind gets thing, get things in it. I, I'm telling you, when, when I was a young person, and even today my wife will tell you, if I hear a song, you're going to hear probably the same little snippet over and over and over again quite often because I'm one of these that I'll get a loop. If it's catchy, it gets in my head. If it's catchy, it gets in my head, and I'm going to sing it. I'm going to sing it over and over and over again. You can probably ask Tia if you come up here during the week. When I'm coming in, I'm usually singing something. Something's in my head, something I've been listening to, unless I'm listening to a podcast or something like that. But music infiltrates the mind at a deeper level than almost anything else. And so she, she was talking about that and how Satan is working in that. Satan is working against God. Satan is working against Uh, The name of Christ. He's working against the people of Christ. And it was evident from the Old Testament all the way until now. I don't want to get too far from that. But I would highly recommend this young lady, if you're a female and you like to listen to good Bible teaching, Jackie Hill Perry is is a very good Bible teacher. But not only is this an effort against God's people, this is an effort against God himself. Look at verses 5 through 8. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. And you can go back and look back into verse 2, where it says, those who hate you have lifted up their head. But in verse 5, let's continue there. For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy. Some translations say a covenant against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, I got it right that time, Philistia, and the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. They have helped the children of Lot. This is the only passage in the Old Testament where someone is said to have made a confederacy or a covenant against someone else. It's the only place in the whole Old Testament. Here the nations are making a covenant against God because God has made a covenant with Israel. God has made a covenant with his people. And the goal of these nations is to cut off God from the face of the earth. The one true God. They've got all their gods, but they don't want to add that one true God. They don't want to submit to the one true God. So they want to cut him off. How dare they think this? Because we could create our own gods that justify our will and satisfy our wants. But this God is about himself and about his glory. And not about... Because we, we create gods all the time for ourselves, don't we? We do. We are good God creators. But yet we are not good to uh, submit to the one true God who creates. We are good God creators. Lower g, lowercase g. Man, we could create a God out of anything. We can make it out of uh, church attendance. We can make it out of our family, out of our kids, our grandkids. We can make it out of our phones. We can make it out of our sports teams. We can make gods out of all kinds of things. We're good at that. We're really good at being God creators, but we're not very good of submitting to the one true creator, God. And it's something that we need to we, got, we have got to come before the Lord and confess our sins, and, and He's faithful and just, and He'll forgive us of those sins. Even creating little gods, he'll, He's good at forgiving us of that. He's good at that. But these nations listed, they seem uh, to be a composite of Israel's enemies, past and present. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that all these folks teamed up at one time together. But the psalmist is talking about at Various times and places, these guys have come together to attack God's people and to destroy God, try to destroy God himself, which is a, a worthless effort. But, but people still try to do that. They still try it, but they're no good and they're not going to win. But they're, they try to. They try to. And there's ten enemies listed here. Uh, there's Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Uh, Assyria, and the children of Lot. There's ten different groups that have come against God. But yet all ten of them fail. Time and time again. It doesn't mean that they they don't put forth a good effort of being enemies of God. It doesn't mean that there's not those that have fallen to the enemies of God. But what it does mean is that God has always come out on top. God has always come out on top. He is a victorious God. There's effort against God's judges in verses 9 through 12. Look at what the scripture says. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jabin at the brook Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became his refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. So now they've tried to take the people of God, They've they've tried they've made the effort against the, God's people. They've made the effort against God Himself. Now they're they're taking uh, they're it's against God's judges. But the whole thing is is it's against God's name. They're trying to take the land. Also, they're trying to let's take for ourselves the pastures of God for possession. But this is an effort against God's judges. If you if you took the time to watch the little sermonette that I did this week on YouTube uh, and I shared it on Facebook, talking about how Gideon. Uh, battled against the Midianites. The Bible tells us that God told him. He said, "If you'll just go over there, and look. I'll give you all the people right now. But if if not, you can take Purah, your servant, and you can go walk and you can look over that hill, and you could go down and you can hear. You can hear in the camp what's going on. You can hear in the camp what's going on. So what did Gideon do? He and Purah crawled down there. They crawled all the way down there, and they were listening real close." And they said, oh, have you not heard? I had a dream. He's like, well, tell me about your dream. He said, I had a dream that a barley loaf tumbled down the hill and it hit a tent and it destroyed these people. And the other guy said, oh, my goodness, that can only be Gideon and a sword of the Lord. He's going to kill us all. And Gideon was like, well, dude, let's go back and tell everybody we won this battle. So he climbs back up the hill and he says, they're in our hands. All we got to do is go get them. God's given them to us. That was that sermonette in a nutshell. It took me several hours to get that thing unload on YouTube. I hope you watched it. I was <laughs> here till two a.m. Sunday morning. Anyway, <laughs> so this is this is there in Midian, the Midianites that were down in the valley. The scripture tells us that they were there was a hundred and thirty-five thousand of them. One hundred thirty-five thousand. How many did Gideon have? 300 men that fought with Gideon. Some of y'all know that Gaither song. Anyway, uh, so there were 300 men that fought with Gideon, okay? And they overtook 135,000. Because one dude, not because of the one dude, because of God, but because God gave a vision to one of those Midianites who said, there's going to be a loaf of barley. It's going to roll down a hill. It's going to crush a tent. And the other guy goes, certainly that's Gideon. There is an effort against God's judges. There, were, there was an effort against God's judges then, and there's still an effort against God today. But we see that there, and we see how God took care of that in all of that. And God had trimmed down Gideon's army and his numbers so that they may know that the victory was not theirs. The victory was not Gideon's. The victory was God's. The victory was God's. And as we look at this, this portion of this scripture, nowhere in here do you see the name of Gideon, uh, Barak, or Deborah mentioned. Because those are the three that have victories over all these names listed in 9 through 12. But do you know why? Because we are yet just a vessel that God uses for his glory and his kingdom's sake. Yeah, are we vital? Are we important? Yeah, the, we are. But what the psalmist in Asaph is trying to tell us here is this: if you will submit and follow after God and believe on him, he will bring those type victories to you. But we got to believe him. We got to trust him. Humbly submit to him. And Asaph is saying, hey, look, deal with these enemies. We've talked about those in verses two through eight. And I mean, yeah, two through eight. And so Gideon is saying, I mean, excuse me, Asaph is saying, God, you remember how you dealt with these that dealt with the judges that made this effort against your judges? You remember how you dealt with them? Deal with our current enemies in the same way. Deal with them in the same way. God is the deliverer, the rescuer, and he is almighty. In all these situations, Asaph quotes the plans Of the nations and those that came against God's judges. Here they say, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. These enemies wanted God's name to end. They wanted God's people to end. And they wanted God's possessions or his lands to come to an end. And this has not ended today. It's still very present in our world today. Let's read verses 13 through 18 and we will see the effort of God... In response to Asaph's prayer, we'll see the effort of God in response to Asaph's prayer. This is what they, this is their hope and prayer of response of God. Asaph wrote, Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind, as the fire burns the woods, and as the flame sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame. What's that next word? What's that next word, church? That. That is a purpose word. Do do y'all know that? Many of you have ever taken English. You know, there's all these things happen so that. Keep that in mind. Just store that in in your mind right there. Do all these things. That they may seek your name, O Lord. In verse 17 and 18, I believe, is, is, is what Asaph prays if they will not see the example set. This is what Asaph says. Uh, do this if they will not seek your face. 17 them let them be confounded and dismayed. When? Forever. He doesn't say forever before that, does he? But he says it after that. If they won't seek your name, let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish. That they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This is, the, this is Asaph's prayer for God's response. This is Asaph's prayer for God's response. He says, "Make them an example." Look there in verses in verses thirteen through fifteen, through through sixteen a, if you will. These are the examples. He says, "Make them as useless as whirling dust." You think about that. Is there anything more useless in your house than dust? Ah, <laughs> oh, creates frivolous work. You know, man. It would be nice if dust didn't exist, wouldn't it? It would make your house so much cleaner, make my house so much cleaner, we'd get a whole lot less sick, all these wonderful things if there wasn't dust. And he's saying, Asaph's saying, make them as useless as dust. Make them like the whirling dust. It has no purpose. Make them like chaff before the wind. If you know how that works, they'll take wheat and they'll beat it out and they'll stomp it out and then they'll throw it up in the air and the wind will take that chaff and just blow it away. It's useless. It has no value. He's saying, use them as an example of what it looks like to be useless. And he's, and he's saying this because their effort is useless. Their effort against God is useless. God, bring it, bring it to their attention, to these enemies. May it be brought to their attention that what they're doing is useless. You are God. Your name, your name. Yes, let them know that you are the most high over all the earth. Do they not realize this? Bring this to their minds. Show them how fruitless their works are. Show them how useless their work of being an enemy against God is. Show them their uselessness in this. Make them like the whirling dust, like the chaff before the wind. Show them that that they should be frightened in their, in, in their efforts against God. Look there in the next set of verses. He says there, As fire burns the woods and as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. We know it it's a scary thing if you ever see fire around dry wood, isn't it? You better have that hose pipe out. You better be prepared. You better have something to dump on that because it, it could get out of hand real fast. Trust me, I know. Trust me, I know. I may have told y'all that story once before already. I was out in the backyard one Sunday, and we were—I uh, was burning a pizza box. I think Julie had went somewhere. She wasn't with us because she would have been the voice of reason and said, "That's a pretty dumb idea. Why are you doing that?" But. She wasn't there to tell me that, so Blake did what he does, and, and I thought I was doing something smart, so I took a pizza box, and I have a fire pit down in, the, in my woods that's cleaned out pretty good around the fire pit, so I sit that down there, and I put a concrete block on top of the, fire, on top of the pizza box so the wind won't blow it away because it was a little windy, not bad, okay? Don't ever think, don't ever think that's a good idea, okay? So I set that box on fire, I go back inside to get dressed, Okay? I'm thinking I'm gonna look sharp more to church tonight. I had on my black pants, my black shirt, and a white tie. My eyes looking slick. Even if I do say so myself. So anyway, I'm in there at the at the at the kitchen and I'm washing some dishes or something like that. And Taryn, at that time, she's probably like, I don't know, in first grade, second about first grade. She goes, Dad, there's a lot of smoke out in the backwoods. And I said, Ah, oh, it's nothing. It's just the it's the pizza box. And so I, I run out the door, and I mean there's leaves, you know, all on the bottom of the, of the woods. And there's a lot of fire about this high. And it's just, whoosh, wind's just blowing it through the woods. And it's not like raging, but it's about this high. And it just looks like a little wall of fire. Just, whoosh. I grab the hose pipe. I run as far as I can. And I'm spraying in the woods, spraying in the woods, trying to put that fire out. Trying to put that fire out. And Brogan goes, I need to call 911. Go call the fire department. Go call the fire department. My host, Pop, ain't going to reach no further. It's going to get in the neighbor's backyard. So he calls the fire department. And you know the first question they ask? It's a volunteer fire department now. Do you know what the first question is they ask? Did you pay your fire dues? <laughs> I've lived up here. I mean, it, it, I couldn't, we couldn't have been living up here very long. I had no clue about fire dues. No, I have not paid the fire dues. Well, next time I pay your fire dues, and they go out there and they put the fire out, you know. But that fire, it just it just caught and it just went, and it had me running, it had the kids running, it had the fire department running, it had the water running, we had everything running. <laughs> everything was running trying to put that fire out. And that scripture's telling us set the set the fi- set the fire. As the fire burns the woods, as the flame sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and frighten them. It's the aggressiveness of God that should create. uh, uh, We should be scared. They should be scared. I was scared. I thought the neighbor's building was going to get burned down. I thought the woods were going to get burned down. I was scared. And we should be frightened. And Asaph said, frighten them into realizing who you are. Some people say, you don't need to be afraid of God. Oh, yeah, you do. Yeah, the Bible tells us, don't fear the man who can take your life. Fear the man who can take your life and your soul. There needs to be a healthy fear of God. There needs to be a healthy fear of God. He says also, he says, fill their faces with shame. He's saying, make them an example by showing how useless they are or how how their works are useless. Show them, uh, make them an example by how frightened they are and then make them an example by how ashamed they should be. They should be ashamed of the efforts that they are making. But the purpose of all that is, is so that they may seek your name. God's desire is that all repent and come to faith in him. Even his enemies, even his greatest enemies, God desires that they turn, repent of their sins and come to faith in him. These enemies, these ten enemies, they had done some vile things against God's people. But Asaph is still saying, Lord, please, use those people that you did this to in the past as an example, that these enemies may turn and seek your name. But if not, look at 17 and 18, but if not, if they won't do it, let them be confounded. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish, that they may know that you whose name alone is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. There's a purpose in, in enemy suffering. There's a, and we were all enemies at one time of Christ. The Bible tells Paul writes in, in one of his letters, that we were all enemies of Christ before salvation. Please, Lord, let us see the example of those and turn ourselves. Turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Now, how does this psalm apply to us today? When I look at my points that I had, there is an ongoing effort against God's people. There is an ongoing effort against God's people. We see the effort there in Psalm 83 in verses 2 through uh, 4. We looked at that against God's people. There's an ongoing effort. I'm just going to give you some examples of how this is still going today. Today. In the state of Washington, more specifically in Kitsap County, a local coach who was fired from his position for praying after games was recently reinstated after the Supreme Court sided with him. After the conclusion of games, Joe Kennedy would remain on the field and kneel for a word of prayer. Players were welcome to join along with parents, but none were required. There was no requirement. There was no destruction of the facilities in any way, but the Freedom From Religion Foundation saw fit to intervene. This is who they are, along with a snippet from an article about them. Let me tell you who they are. This is one definition. It's, uh, they are a foundation. It's a constitutional watchdog dedicated to keeping religion and government separate that has 40,000 members in several chapters across the country, including more than 1,700 members in Washington and two states. Uh, and two state chapters. Here's the second definition from another article about the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's the largest national association of free thinkers, representing 41,000 atheists, agnostics, and others. And this is specifically in regard to what's happened in in Washington. It says, uh, "...who form their opinions about religion based on reason rather than faith, tradition, or authority." And then in the article it wrote, By the way, 39% of adult residents of Kitsap County, Washington, identify as atheist, agnostics, or nothing in particular, and are religiously unaffiliated, making Kennedy's performative public piety particularly disturbing. Now now you tell me, 39%. Let's think about the mathematics here, if if we're smart people. 39% are atheist, agnostics, or nothing in particular. So how how much percentage does that leave? 61% that are in some form religious. So what's the value of what you're saying here? Okay. (laughs) Anyway, uh, there's also an ongoing effort against God himself. If you go to their website, the Freedom From Religion Foundation website, one of their banner slides calls for banning the Bible and the Book of Mormon. This is being pushed in none other than Salt Lake City undoubtedly they don't know much history do they? Salt Lake City was founded by the Mormons what else do you think they're going to be teaching from? they're going to be teaching from the Bible and the Book of Mormon and they're trying to ban it there Boy, that's intelligent, good, good job there Freedom from, Freedom from Religion Foundation let me tell you about their national they're going to have a national uh, convention coming up very soon and this, is, this organization reaches all over the place. It reaches into the into Alabama. I've heard of them uh, complaining about football games where students are leading prayers. Let me tell you some of the people that's going to be speaking at their uh, national f- convention. Uh, Andrew Seidel. He is the author of American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. He is Vice President of Strategic Communications at American Air Americans Air United, excuse me. Jen Castle, she's the National Director of Abortion Service Delivery at Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And she will accept, on behalf of Planned Parenthood, the $35,000 Henry Zumok Freedom from Religious Fundamentalism Award. These are some of their speakers. Uh, I've just got a couple more, and then I'm going to move on. Liz Winstead, she is a political satirist. She'll receive the foundation's Emperor Has No Clothes Award. She is the co-creator of The Daily Show and a founder of Abortion Access Front, which is a team of comedians, writers, and producers who use humor to destigmatize abortion and expose the extremist forces working to destroy abortion rights. She will be the Saturday night keynote speaker. Emily Olson, she's a member of the City Council of Owasa, Michigan. She'll be receiving the foundation's Nothing Fails Like Prayer Award for bravely attempting to persuade the council to discontinue prayer. And then finally, says, Our student activist awardees Bear Bright and Lars Stovall are suing over West Texas a and censorship of a drag show benefit sponsored by a secular student club on campus. The students, fittingly, will be introduced by two local drag queen performers, Brianna Banks and Latina Envy. Do you think there's still enemies of God, enemies of God's people today? Yeah. Yes, there are. That's just a little bit. That's just a little bit. From what's out there. That's just a little bit. There's an ongoing effort against God's leaders and congregations. And I, I could read that. I'm going to bypass that. It's a lot of statistics about how there's so much violence now on church campuses now. And uh, I will read this this last part here. I don't want to lose my place. Here we go. It says, Extrapolating to the whole U.S. population, this The NIBRS reporting agencies, they they estimate that there are actually about 480 incidents of serious violence at places of worship in the U.S. each year. These incidents produce about 46 deaths and 218 serious injuries annually. This is a serious problem. There are still enemies of God. There are still enemies of God's people, and there are still enemies of God's leaders. They're still here. They're still prevalent, and they're gaining popularity. One statistic as I was studying about this is there is a new group of people. They're called nuns. Not as you would probably consider them from the Catholic faith of a N-U-N-S. It's N-O-N-E-S. Which means they are not affiliated with anything. They are none. They are there's no affiliation whatsoever. They say by 2050, they'll be uh, the vast majority of the United States will have more nuns, n o n e s, than any other religious than any other religious faith. There is an attack. There is an attack on God. There is an attack on God's people. There are still enemies of God. There are still enemies. So, what does this psalm reveal toward Jesus Christ? I'm going to speak through this very quickly. What does this psalm reveal about Jesus Christ? While on the cross, Jesus was silent. He held his peace and was still in the will of God. While his major foe, Satan, thought he was winning. While those ardent in rebellion were cheering, In mocking, Jesus was being quiet. While the new disciples were mourning, Christ was being obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Their effort was to try to cut off the name of Christ from the earth to hinder the work of God and His kingdom to come. Unholy alliances such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans joined to complete the work of Christ's death and crucifixion in that moment. Similarly, to that of the ten nations and those who came against the judges in our passages today. But Jesus dealt with them while on the cross in a merciful and compassionate way. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In verse 16, we see that God, in His making them as an example, was still desiring their repentance for them to seek His name. But just as those at the end will be forever condemned by their refusing the grace and mercy of God to an eternal judgment, these in our text today were confounded, dismayed, put to shame, and perished forever when they did not seek God's face. Our prayer should be, number one, as Asaph prayed, God, use all the examples of the past, of how you did things, how you punished people, how you... Chastised your people, how you punish those enemies of yours, use them as examples, so that people may come to faith and seek your face. Our first heart should never be, as Christians, to say as um, as James and John, uh, James and Andrew did uh, there when they were coming in and the Samaritans wouldn't let them have the place. He said, Jesus, should we call down fire to kill them? Our first desire against God's enemies should not be that mindset. Our first desire should be, God, help me tell them about an example where when you are an enemy of God about what comes from that. So that they may seek your name and be saved. That's the heart of a true disciple of Christ. Is that those that are enemies of God turn from their wicked ways and be saved to seek his face. But God, we know what's going to happen to them if they don't. You're going to confound them. They're going to perish. But God, we pray, we pray that you are slow. Not as the world considers it, Lord, but you're slow for the fact that it's your desire that all repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ.